There's very few things that are as difficult as rocket engine development. Tom Mueller, rocket engineer. Rocket engines release so much energy that if something goes wrong, it usually can be pretty catastrophic. Tom was part of the founding team at SpaceX, the company started by Elon Musk with the stated goal of revolutionizing space technology. Mistakes are immediately apparent and can be devastating. So in order to be a successful rocket development engineer, you're going to make mistakes, but you better, you better be right most of the time. And we had a, a saying, there's a thousand things that can happen when you ignite a rocket engine and only one of them is good. <laughs> Welcome to the Future Lab podcast, bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present day reality. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual Future Lab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and using technology to change how we live our lives. In this episode, Rocket Man. What would be your definition of, of how big space is? It is infinite, literally. When you get to infinity, it just it blows your mind. <laughs> we haven't even moved off the shore yet in the space. You know, we're still in like the, the grains of sand on the shore. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox, a medical diagnostic company developing faster and more accurate ways of testing for diseases and other health conditions. Across the series, we're visiting Randox to meet some of the people making it happen. I'm Kenneth Martin. I'm a senior R&D scientist here in Randox, Toronto, based here in Donegal. I've worked here for six years. Being in research and development means Kenneth is at the forefront of Randox's most innovative work. Well, before this, I was working in uh, cardiovascular research. Kenneth has kind of worked his way around the body. And before that, I worked in the thrombosis. Now he's settled in at the kidneys, where he's working on improving diagnostic tests for chronic kidney disease. CKD is a long-term condition where kidneys stop functioning normally, no longer filtering out toxins and waste effectively. Later on, we'll come back to Randox to hear how they're improving on early detection of the disease. Now, back to the Future Lab podcast. There's a phrase I really like. Break it till you make it. It's a philosophy that'll be familiar to many of the people we meet in this podcast and to entrepreneurs and pioneers worldwide. When you're trying to do something no one's done before, you often have to live through some major lows to get to the highs. And you have to be ready to face failure, to learn from mistakes. Break it till you make it. 
If there's one company right now which encapsulates all that, it's got to be SpaceX. When things have gone wrong at SpaceX, it's been on a huge scale and with the eyes of the world upon them. Explosions, fires, the failures are certainly always eye-catching. But they've also been able to dust themselves off, learn from the failures and fundamentally change the landscape of space exploration in just a few short years. So what does it take to be the ones who shake things up? What does it take to be the ones who actually do the things others are calling impossible? Tom Mueller, known by friends and co-workers as Rocket Man, spent the last two decades right at the epicentre of all the highs and lows at SpaceX. I think Elon once said... Elon Musk, that is, the guy behind PayPal, Tesla and SpaceX. Flying a rocket is like, you're going to build a, like a Formula One car and win the race, but you can never run it on the track. You can test it as much as you want in the garage, but you never get to fly it on the track till the first time it's got to win. You fly a rocket, you can't pull it over to the side and fix it. It's, it either works or it doesn't. And then you go fly it and cross your fingers and hope you didn't miss anything. <laughs> when we're watching the footage of the SpaceX launches and, you know, over the years have been some spectacular, you know, explosions and, and <laughs> failures as well yes. as the brilliant successes, you know, that analogy, it completely explains the attitude that you have to have. The thing about rockets is often if something breaks, the rocket's going to fall from the sky. If not, just blow up and fall from the sky in pieces. In this episode, I wanted to meet Rocket Man himself and hear firsthand the SpaceX break it till you make it story. As Vice President of Propulsion Engineering at the company and later CTO of Propulsion, Tom was responsible for developing the early rocket engines for SpaceX, engines that now power rockets like the Falcon 9. And uh, also launch all those Starlink satellites. That's the constellation of satellites that will soon be delivering broadband internet around the world. Tom also did the original design and development of the propulsion systems for SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft, which can carry cargo and humans into orbit. But all of this started at a much smaller scale. I grew up in St. Mary's, Idaho, which is half the towns on the Indian Reservation, which is significant because there's no fireworks laws on the Indian Reservation. So we just had fireworks all the time. <laughs> you could go to Angie's Smoke Shop in town and buy, you know, bottle rockets and firecrackers and M80s. And I was just fascinated with fireworks as a kid. Tom's dad was a logger and expected him to go down a similar path. He drove a logging truck and he taught me how to saw and stuff, but he didn't think much in terms of college or engineering. He just thought about, uh, I could be a logger, I could be a mechanic. Like, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how I ended up becoming an engineer. Tom credits his dad with his work ethic and sense of integrity and says his parents always encouraged him at school. And they always wanted me to get good grades. But it wasn't like them that said, you need to go to college and you need to use your brain to go do bigger things. So that was, it seems like it was mostly just self-generated, which is kind of amazing to me. Like, I look at me and I go, how did I get here without anybody telling me how to get here? Tom was irresistibly drawn towards rocket engines. The obsession started when he was just a kid. 
when I was like in sixth grade, there was this high school level book on four stroke engines, on internal combustion engines. So I, I think by the time I graduated from high school, that book only had my name in it for checking it out. I think I pretty much owned that book the whole time I was there. And I remember taking it to my dad and going, so this is how the engine works. The valves open and the, the gases come in. And he, he kind of walked me through it. And then I was just fascinated with engines. Jet engines, car engines. I took apart the lawnmower. Did your dad mind that you took apart the lawnmower? He was mad. He came home and it was still apart uh, on the driveway. And uh, he was mad. He's like, you're going to mow the lawn the rest of your life if you don't get that thing working again. <laughs> and I got it, I put it back together. <laughs> I remember there, there was a few extra nuts and bolts there. He's kind of... Like, you know, those need to be in there somewhere. Even with those nuts and bolts left on the driveway, Tom got that lawnmower working again. But I was just interested in these types of things. And once I found SD's rockets, you know, the little flying model rockets, I think that's where my love of rockets really started. And then I, I just started reading about liquid rockets, and that was just fascinating to me. I always wanted to build a liquid rocket, so I, when I was a junior in high school, I, I took my dad's oxyacetylene welder and made, you know, it wasn't a liquid rocket, but a gas, a gas, gas rocket. And uh, I actually ended up going to the International Science Fair down here in California, my first trip uh, out of state, basically. So Tom's love of engines and rockets also helped expose him to the world outside the small Idaho town where he grew up. About high school and college, Time, I started to really become fascinated with how how big and amazing space is. Like trying to figure out like billions of light years. Like what does that mean? How big is that? It's just you can't really comprehend it. But to realize yeah. that it's bigger than you can comprehend is just is just amazing. Space was the place for me, and rockets were the thing. Tom knew he'd chosen the right career path the first day he ever saw a really big engine fire up. We were down at a Stennis Space Center, the NASA Space Center in Mississippi. That's NASA's biggest rocket engine testing facility. Out in the swamps where nobody's around, so you can run gigantic engines. That's where they're, they're running the whole stages of Apollo and, and, and SLS. And they were running, it was some of the first tests for the main engine for the Delta IV rocket, which is a 650,000 pound thrust hydrogen oxygen engine, so a big engine. And we were like, I don't know, a mile away watching that test. And as soon as it lit, to feel that much energy, and, and I, I, I'm not just saying here, to feel that much energy from a mile away, you realize that the energy being released, it's, it's literally tens of gigawatts, tens of billions of watts of energy. Enough power to run the city of LA. And I remember my first thought was, how can that thing even stay together? Because it's, it's just a small thing, you know? It's not much bigger than this desk. To hear it and feel it, it's if you haven't ever been at a rocket launch or near a rocket engine, it's, it's almost like a religious experience. After that, Tom knew he could never go back to small engine development. And I'm like, oh, boosters is where it's at. Long before his SpaceX days, Tom worked as an engineer at a company called TRW. At the time, it was like, in the top five aerospace companies in the U.S., probably in the world. They had an excellent rocket engine department, and I was the manager of the rocket engine development department. But they were a satellite company. They were not a propulsion company. There, we were the necessary evil. We were like the engines that they needed to get their satellites to move around in space. And so it was, it was very bureaucratic, 
and I spent most of my time in meetings that were pretty much meaningless. On top of feeling bogged down in the bureaucracy, Tom was frustrated by working to client briefs and by the silos in the design process. At TRW, we're building to other people's specs. And you, you just say, like, that's stupid. Why are they doing that? Well, that's the way we want it done. And it's just, it was kind of frustrating building an engine the wrong way or, or using the wrong mixture ratio or pressures or whatever. And you just knew it was not right, but it's the way they wanted it. And you had, you had to fit, you know, your round peg in their square hole. And it's just, it was kind of frustrating. Tom had job offers at other companies where rocket engines were the main line of business. And he was thinking about going when an unexpected opportunity came along. Outside of work, he was still tinkering with liquid fuel rockets in his garage. I was a member of the Reaction Research Society Rocket Club since about 1990. The Reaction Research Society, set up in 1943, describes itself as the oldest continuously operating amateur experimental rocket group in the United States. So if you thought Tom's insatiable love of rockets might have made him a bit of an outsider, don't worry, he found his people. The Reaction Research Society has its own testing site in the Mojave Desert, where rocket enthusiasts from all walks of life gather to test their creations. Homemade solid and liquid propellant rockets. It was probably late 2001. Tom and a friend from the club were working on a project together. A 13,000 pound thrust liquid oxygen kerosene engines. The largest amateur engine we believe that was in existence. It turned out word of this endeavor had gotten out. And my friend John Garvey said, Hey, there's this internet millionaire that started PayPal, or one of the founders of PayPal that wants to come see the rocket and talk to you. I'm like, uh, I didn't really want to, but I just said, Okay. And that's when Elon Musk paid a visit to Tom in his friend John Garvey's workshop. Good thing I said okay. It was in January of 2002. I had, I had the engine on my shoulder. We're bolting it to the stage, trying to get the bolts in. And he said, uh, what's that? And, you know, it's a 13,000-pound thrust rocket engine. He goes, is that, a, is that a big one? I go, it's probably the biggest amateur rocket that we know of. And he said, uh, have you ever worked on anything bigger? And I go, yeah. How big? You know, and it just kind of went on like that, like... We set the rocket engine down and just started talking about, you know, like I had worked on a 650,000 pound thrust engine at TRW and he asked me, could you build that engine? I said, oh, I'm pretty familiar with it. Yeah, I could probably build one like that. How much would that cost? You know, it's like, that's how it kind of went. Tom met with Elon several more times, discussing an idea for a new company. Elon was getting passionate about Mars exploration and human settlements on the Red Planet. But at $8 million a pop, he'd found buying rockets too expensive. He wanted to build affordable rockets and he needed someone to design them. They'd be attempting to do something no private company had ever done. And the only way to work out if it was even possible would be to run towards their goal at full speed knowing they could fall on their faces at any time. Tom had to do some risk calculations. There was a company that had really good guys that were developing a rocket engine and they tried to get me to come join, but they didn't have any money. And there's another company that had a lot of money, but they, they had what I thought were bad ideas. 
And so when I met Elon, I realized that like PayPal was about to go public, like it went public in February. So by the time we started the company, he had the capital and he's going to let us develop the propulsion system. He listened to my ideas. And so I felt like, yeah, this is going to, this is going to work. I felt like this was the best chance. Elon offered Tom a job. I, I wanted to do it. So I went home and told my wife about it. I said, what do you think? She goes, you know, you got to do it. Tom signed up, along with Chris Thompson, who'd be the vice president of structures. Well, I didn't know it then, but I found out much later. I was the first one to sign. So I ended up becoming employee number one in payroll, and Thompson ended up becoming employee number two, and Elon ended up becoming employee number three in payroll. So Tom was in. Now he had to build a team. I had a hard time hiring anybody because everybody had assumed that only a big company with the support of the U.S. government could develop a liquid rocket engine. This podcast is brought to you by Roundox. Earlier in the episode, we met Kenneth, who works in research and development. Kenneth and his team are trying to develop more efficient diagnostic tests for chronic kidney disease. To help doctors diagnose it earlier, Randox wanted to find more biomarkers for the disease. Biomarkers is a word you hear a lot around here, but it basically means something you can use to evaluate whether a person's healthy or to investigate the presence of a disease. Your height, your age, any kind of characteristic that can be measured or quantified can be considered a biomarker. They can even measure levels of specific molecules or proteins that are circulating in your body. At the moment, doctors primarily diagnose CKD by looking at two measurements of creatinine and albumin. But to help doctors get better at diagnosing the disease, Randox identified a whole range of biomarkers that can indicate failing kidney function. When you look at the kidney, it has this normal filtration function, but it's also got blood vessels. You also have sort of an inflammation component to it. So all these biomarkers they created a sophisticated way to run multiple biomarker tests simultaneously. They do it using a unique piece of technology called a biochip. We'll be back with Kenneth later to explain how the biochip works and what it means for the future of chronic kidney disease diagnosis. Now, back to the Future Lab podcast. Tom Mueller had just joined SpaceX. The company had bold ambitions and three employees. Now he had to find a way to deliver on what he promised Elon he could do. I was naive enough and confident enough that I, I told Elon, I said, no, we can do it. We can, I can put together a team, we can do it. Well, I had a hard time getting people to come. What SpaceX was trying to do operating outside of the traditional aerospace world, people didn't exactly see it as a safe bet. As much as Tom believed in what they were going to be doing, he found he couldn't just go around the industry headhunting the top engineers to join him. So I ended up having to hire people that were not from aerospace. In fact, my lead designer, who's still there to this day working on Raptor, came from Mattel Toys. He's a good friend of mine. We rode motorcycle and said, Will you come be my lead designer? And I taught him everything he needed to know about the injectors and liquid rockets. If this move hadn't worked out, 
it would have been open season for all the critics. It was daunting knowing that I'm, I'm to, to build this pump-fed booster engine with just a few people and, and the capital that we had. Yeah, really interesting that you were having to recruit from outside of the traditional channels, because I imagine that that in itself brings innovation to a startup that is really valuable because people see things in different ways. Absolutely. I, you know, people that have been working in big aerospace for a long time tend to think that way and they get set in their ways. I was lucky that I didn't really get set in, in, in my way because I was, you know, I was there for almost for over 15 years and I, I was a troublemaker at TRW. I mean, because I always wanted to do stuff faster and better. And, you know, I had my own ideas and I thought that this design by committee was was BS. <laughs> and if you hire people that have worked their whole career in design by committee, I mean, there's always this like joke about like, this guy was responsible for the bolt for the turbo pump on the shuttle main engine, you know, and that's all he ever did. And it's kind of true. You get these big aerospace companies are so compartmentalized that the people that you would hire only know a little bit about this certain thing. They know a lot about this certain thing, but they don't know anything about anything else. Tom realized if you build your company out of those people, you've got to hire a lot of them to get all the expertise you need. So we just hired really smart people from other industries or actually right out of the best schools and taught them the SpaceX way. And he discovered that this way he could do a lot with a much smaller, more agile team. It's kind of a paradigm shift from traditional aerospace. It's one of the main reasons why I think that SpaceX has been so successful. So with a team in place, Tom got right to it. He needed to build an engine to power what would be the first SpaceX rocket, Falcon 1. It was a launch vehicle that, if it worked, could be used to deliver probes, satellites or other equipment to space. So Falcon 1 had one Merlin engine on the first stage and a Kestrel, like a one-tenth size engine on the second stage. And it was our first foray. That engine was pretty crude, but it was, I think, fairly reliable. Tom's job was to design and build the Merlin and Kestrel engines that would get Falcon 1 off the ground and into orbit. I spent probably a third of my life at the Texas test site to that point, and the engine was considered critical path for probably the first, you know, three years of the company. Once the engine had passed every test they could think of, it was deemed qualified, and the structures and avionics teams did their thing, building the rest of the rocket. The company was founded in 2002, and by 2006, they were finally ready to try launching the rocket. They'd done everything they could, but there was no way to know if they'd succeeded until they pushed that launch button. We were sitting on this tiny island in Kwajalein in the South Pacific. Everything was, was hanging. We only had one piece of hardware, one, one rocket, and it basically had to work for us to you know, move to the next step. Four years of work, tens of millions of dollars spent. The SpaceX team had one rocket and one chance. As soon as it took off, you could see on video it was on fire. The wires were burning and we knew something was wrong and then the engine just shut off after about 35 seconds. It was just devastating. Like, here's everything that we've been working on for the last four years, and it came literally crashing down right in front of us. It went one mile up, and a 
a pneumatic line uh, burned through. It was a, basically a, a braided Teflon line and the Teflon melted and it released the pneumatic pressure and the valves closed because they had no pressure. And it still had two thirds or three quarters of the propellant in it because it only had burned for 30 seconds. So it was a bomb when it, it fell a mile and it hit the water and went off like 40,000 pounds of high explosive. <laughs> and it was gone. A far cry from the fireworks and model rockets in St. Mary's, Idaho. You've tested all the, what we call the corners of the box, you know, high mixture ratio, low mixture ratio, high pressure, low pressure, warm propellant, cold propellant. So you've really covered all the things that could bite you. Well, we didn't take into account that you're sitting on a tiny island in the open Pacific and there's so much salt blowing in the air that you have a layer of salt, like, you know, an eighth of an inch thick on the side of the rocket. We didn't see it coming. And so we had massive corrosion problems and that's what actually sunk us. So it wasn't the stuff that we'd thought about that caused the first flight failure. It's the things that we didn't think about. The thing that had failed was one aluminium fitting. Just one fitting. It corroded, broke and took the whole rocket down. You can tell that even now, Tom's a little blindsided. I'd never heard of, a, of one of these fittings cracking before. He'd even seen these same fittings on old rockets that had been sitting outside the Kennedy Space Center for years. They're like a quarter mile or a half mile away from the ocean. I'm like, how are these not cracked? They used them. They didn't have this bad luck. After the explosion, Tom, Elon and a few of the team got in a helicopter and flew out to survey the damage. They were the first ones at the site and it was... It was just devastating, you know, like miserable. I mean, it was just, and then I had to fly back from Kwajalein, you know, a 10 hour flight basically in, in Elon's jet with him explaining how practically sunk the company. So it was not a good time. This podcast is brought to you by Randox. Earlier in this episode, we spoke to Kenneth, a scientist in Randox's R&D team. He's working to help improve diagnosis of chronic kidney disease. To do this, Randox came up with a whole panel of biomarkers that can indicate problems with kidney function. The beauty of our Randox biochip array technology is we can actually analyse many of these simultaneously in a single sample. Doctors can take one blood sample from a patient and test a whole range of biomarkers at once. This makes the road to diagnosis much quicker and more efficient. So, you have a suspicion of chronic kidney disease? You take a blood sample from the patient, spin it down to get the plasma, and put it onto the biochip, a physical 9x9 ceramic square tile. That's about the size of your fingernail. On it is a grid with different tests in each section. What we have with our chronic kidney disease arrays are markers of renal filtration function. Because the biochip can test so many biomarkers at once, doctors can detect CKD much earlier. So we're hoping to basically catch these individuals at a time where interventions and preventative measures are still possible. By diagnosing patients earlier, doctors can begin providing treatment or monitoring to help keep the condition in check. 
To find out more about the work Randox does, you can visit randoxhealth.com. SpaceX's first launch went up in flames. But if you're trying to shape a new future or change the world radically, how you respond in these moments of epic failure may just be the key to whether or not you've actually got a shot at succeeding. It's quite famous that um, the second launch failed also. Will you power through to the other side? They had a list of top 10 problems and the slosh problem that ultimately brought down the rocket didn't make the top 10 list. Just how much failure can you take? Even if you have a top 10 list, things that weren't on your top 10 list can come back and sink you. SpaceX had now failed twice to launch Falcon 1. But you know what they say, three times a charm. So Tom and the team picked themselves up again and prepared for their third launch attempt. And it failed on the first launch for stupid reasons. Fourth time lucky, perhaps? We just made a timing adjustment to solve the problem with the new engine on the third launch. And the fourth launch was magic. It worked. That was jubilation. That was like, we made orbit. That was quite a party. (laughs) Just six years after starting the company, on the 28th of September 2008, Falcon 1 was successfully launched into orbit around the Earth. But despite this enormous success, getting there had left the company almost broke. We had gone through all of Elon's money that he'd allocated for the company. Tesla was struggling. We were successful, but we were very worried about whether the company could continue where we had the money. But SpaceX had finally proven themselves. NASA awarded them a contract to work on the development of the Dragon cargo spacecraft. And that saved us. And we learned from our failures and we made it super successful. In the end, that's what really matters. Of course, it was hard to do it, but if it was easy, everybody would be doing it and it wouldn't be that special. SpaceX had done something no private company had ever achieved. It was stepping up big time, offering a major challenge to the traditional aerospace industry. The way they worked, the low cost at which they were able to build rockets, and the technology they were developing, all of it was groundbreaking. I remember early on when we first announced the Falcon 9 and what it could do, I remember the internet experts coming out of the woodwork and saying, there's no way a rocket that small can throw that much payload because it was so well optimized from a mass standpoint and from an engine performance standpoint that it could throw a lot of payload for its liftoff mass. The Falcon 9 is the world's first orbital-class reusable rocket. Designed to make space exploration more affordable, by enabling the use of the most expensive parts of the rocket on more than one flight. No one else has ever managed to do this. Or as Tom puts it... It's a a good performing rocket engine. I'm quite proud of it. Do you take a slight pleasure in proving the critics wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... SpaceX will never fly Falcon 1. SpaceX will never fly Falcon 9. SpaceX will never make Falcon 9 reliable. SpaceX will never take cargo to the space station. SpaceX will never take... 
don't ever bet against SpaceX. <laughs> no way. And now it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, you were able to fly and land at Starship. It'll never make orbit. Or it'll never go to the moon. I would not bet against <laughs> SpaceX. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, in May 2021, the latest SpaceX prototype cargo and passenger craft, called Starship SN15, achieved its first successful flight and landing after several failed attempts that had featured explosions, collisions with the ground, and disintegration on landing. I heard it from everybody all the time through the whole thing, like, oh, you guys can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. And we knew we could do it. Like, we were confident, like, we were going to do it. And we did. The hell with the critics. (laughs) And I love proving them wrong. Their success with Starship a few weeks ago came just a year after they achieved another of their biggest ambitions, taking two NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. When we first started talking about flying people early on, it was kind of scary because we were pretty fast and loose, you know, and we had a lot to learn. And getting involved with NASA and getting the discipline that NASA brought and also having the capability of testing the systems to the nth degree to make sure they're reliable. When we were okay to fly people, I'm like, we've arrived. We've, we've become a mature company and we're ready to do it. We talked about this for decades. Like we're gonna, we're gonna become, we're gonna fly people. Like it's true that when I first met Elon, he was talking about taking people to Mars. It wasn't, that didn't come later. We did the company because of that. and. I always knew that that was the plan, so I was always nervous about, wow, that's a, that's a lot to do that. And here we are. We're doing it. Tom says the failures that SpaceX faced along the way were integral to the journey. When you have these really difficult things that you get past, those are the things you remember, and those are the things that you're proud of. In late 2020, Tom retired from SpaceX. He'd gone from a kid pulling apart the engine in his dad's lawnmower to a guy who helped push space exploration forward in ways that kid could never have imagined. But, he says, we've really barely begun. We're using up all of the, the words for space. We haven't even moved off the shore yet into space. You know, we're still in, like, the, the grains of sand on the shore. And we, we were like, oh, we're exploring deep space. We're not anywhere near deep space. We're, like, in the inner planets. Like, we've sent some things out to the outer planets. Like, to me, deep space is, is like intergalactic space. <laughs> it's like, we're so far away from that. We're not even interstellar. We're not even between stars yet. We're just maybe beyond the planets, you know, with a couple of our probes. But mostly what we're talking about doing is this right here in our neighborhood of our tiny solar system. It's funny that we name things Virgin Galactic and uh, Starship and Starlink and everything's got... Co- you know, like the whole cosmos in it when we haven't even moved <laughs> very far past and, we, our... and we're still in the shallows right by the shore yeah <laughs> okay that's completely blown my mind it's kind of frustrating that space is so big and our capability is so small I want to go see other star systems but they're so far away it's not going to happen in my lifetime <laughs> the future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Paul Smith and Peggy Sutton from Something Else. 
with Neil Cole. The annual FutureLab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast. <laughs>